welcome to this CL Insights podcast with me, Helen Brooks, Business Development Manager here at CL. I'm really pleased to bring you our next podcast on our focus area for the current time of farmer adoption of innovation. So keep a watch out for other podcasts in this series and a number of blogs from a range of CL members and other contributors that we'll be releasing over the next couple of weeks. So what's so important about farmer adoption? Well, it was a key theme that dominated the CL Accelerating Innovation Members event in 2022, uh, where it was highlighted that innovation is happening across the industry. We're getting new bits of kit, new bits of innovation, but actually there's a there's a sticking point. And the sticking point is that farmers aren't always investing in the technology and using it on farm. And one of the areas that they really perceive is, is the farmer risk and the risk that the farmers perceive from engaging in the innovation. Now, there's a whole cycle to consider when looking to engage uh, an audience with a new concept, a new product, a service, and these strategies need to be diverse. However, a key area that gets mentioned a lot is knowledge transfer and knowledge exchange. And these can be really important when looking um, at areas, especially when looking at research led projects. But there's no doubt that both knowledge transfer and knowledge exchange are critical to encourage adoption of new technology. The strategies and methods used need to be varied. And these will vary depending on audience, sector, innovation, plus a variety of other industry specifics on farm. So it's great that I have here today on the podcast, uh, Ben Williams, the Sustainability Manager for Glambia Cheese, to discuss some of the ways they've developed farmer facing strategies to drive adoption and mitigate the barriers. Welcome Ben to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Great, Ben, could you just give an overview of your role and, uh, and your, your experience in this area? Yes, so for Glambia Cheese, I'm their sustainability manager, as you mentioned. I look after cradle to customer uh, sustainability issues. So this includes um, carbon emissions and broader sustainability, biodiversity, water use, not just within our own operations at plant, but all the way back down the supply chain uh, onto farm, where we've identified the vast majority of emissions are already within our footprint before they reach ourselves, um, but also then beyond our borders all the way to the point of distribution to customer. Fantastic. So yeah, so I just want to obviously have a, a nice conversation with yourself about the areas that you're really um, looking at at the moment. So can you give us maybe an overview of some of the areas that you've been working with the farmers, uh, the Glambia farmers, to increase that sustainability element of the milk? Yeah, so it probably won't come as a shock to anybody in the dairy sector that there are four broad areas that contribute towards sustainability challenges. So these, um, we call them the four Fs. Um, these are feed, fertility or, or really herd management fertilizer particularly the balance between organic and inorganic manures and then fuels and whilst fuels are hugely important to a farmer's bottom line and, and we certainly support with sort of innovations and ideas and concepts our real focus has been on the first three with feed in particular the removal of challenging ingredients soya being a prime example for us um, in terms of fertility it's about that operational effectiveness um, it's very challenging to walk onto a farm and, and say that the management needs support. It's a bit like telling somebody they've got an ugly baby. It's it's not fair, it's not true, and it's never well received. Um, and it's not intended like that. It's, it's very much more about, rather than telling a farmer they have to be more efficient, it's about supporting that efficiency. And then I suppose we've tried to push the envelope a little bit and fill in those gaps of near market innovations such as microbial additives in supporting a reduction in purchase fertilizer partly because of costs um, but more about building circularity within the supply chain so those are our three broad areas of focus wow. and then so in terms of the approaches that you've taken in, in t for those three areas so why have you taken those approaches and then maybe can you give us some examples of the strategies that you've used 
Yeah, so we, we we seem to encounter sort of a couple of challenges or barriers. I suppose they can happen at all parts of the supply chain, but they're, they're overly characterised at either end. So if we take the, the real reason we're doing this is sustainability is going to be a right to supply. It will be a hygiene factor of doing business or a cost of doing business. And we have to do it, not just because morally it's the right thing to do, but also because that is the expectation of the customer and, and where we draw the definition of who that customer is, we can debate, but the customer demands it. So it has to happen. But at that customer end, there is that expectation then it will just happen. And, and sometimes the point where there's an assumption that if we say so, or we make it a regulatory effect, either through assurance or, or literally a regulatory effect, it'll just happen. And, and it doesn't. You know, there's a whole series of levers that have to be pulled on to drive um, uptake at pace or change at pace, not necessarily uptake because some of it's just good practice. Equally, then those perhaps coming into the supply chain uh, lower down, trying to support farmers with innovations and new ideas and new concepts. There is um, to sort of be a bit colloquial. There is a Wayne's World 2 effect for those of you've seen the film. You know, if you build it, they will come or if you book them, they will come. And that doesn't happen. You know, we, we don't see just because you've got a good idea, everybody's going to do it. And, and research suggests that there's about a 40 to 50 year tick time in terms of innovation being seen as a good idea and then actually being broadly accepted. And so innovation's only innovation if somebody uses it. Otherwise, it's it's just a good idea that somebody's had. And so we recognise we have to drive it at pace. There needs to be a different approach. And this is where um, nudge theory, behavioural insights or, or behavioural levers come into play. We have to do it. We have to move faster. And at the moment, we're significantly underestimating the time and the effort that takes. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a really good point. That time and effort um, element is is really important and something that I think probably both of us have seen in our careers is that we want to change something. So we'll do X, Y and Z and, and I'm sure it will happen. And that just that just doesn't happen in, in the industry. So in terms of some of those um, strategies that you've tried to put in, in place, you mentioned behaviour insights and nudge theories, etc. Um, what are some of those strategies that you have used or are using um, to drive this forward? Well, if I give you a couple of examples, it's it's probably the best way of doing it. Um, the most wicked problem, I suppose, and, and the largest scale change for us is we want to remove soya from our supply chain by 2027, and that's meal, hulls and oil. Not that oil is a huge contributor within within sort of dairy feeds or certainly not within the supply chains we've seen so far. But meal obviously has a historic challenge in that it's a good protein. You know, there's, there's no two ways about it for animal feed, but it has all of that land use change associated with it. It has all of the reputational risk. There's a huge challenge there. And on our farms, it's about 7% of the footprint. There are alternatives. There are valid alternatives out there. And I suppose to switch from soya by 2027 into those valid alternatives, that's, that's quite complex and wicked and there are multiple actors, but the, the first primary one is the farmers. And I think the first piece we did is we set out a realistic scope, you know, looking looking at what we needed to do. Um, and actually, we, we built a model around reset. So regulation, economics, um, social drivers, education and tools or technology, that sort of carrot and stick, um, although I suppose stick is the is the harsh regulatory end. It should probably be called Tether, actually. We should pick this up. Tether's not that catchy, is it? That's the challenge. Um, so with soya, for example, we went to the feed companies who supply into our feed chain and we asked them, quite frankly, you know, have you got an alternative to soya? 
Have you tried it in the market? Are you aware of the cost or the impacts to the farmer in terms of the financial cost of the shift? And then, of course, that, that risk factor. I mean, you mentioned that in your introduction and risk and ambiguity are the two biggest barriers to change at any pace. So once we once we'd identified what the tool was, the important thing was to try and work with those feed companies as much as possible to educate farmers. And, and I say that sort of slightly tongue in cheek because the vast majority of farmers are quite happy to sort of be educated but really it's the nutritionist selling to the farmer that that sort of needed to be educated that there was an opportunity here to help the farmer become more sustainable maintain productivity and profitability and at the same time sort of wean ourselves as an industry away from a product that's that's a stick that we're beaten with in terms of our our sustainability sort of reputation so we talk about changing farmers, but actually reset applies across the whole supply chain and knowing your actors who you want to actually um, influence is, is crucial. Once we'd we'd educate the nutritionists and and we'd found some farmers who were willing to make the change, it was about supporting them and building them up. And that's really where we are at the moment. So we set ourselves a target, right? 2027 is where we want the ban to come in this year. Um, 2023 we'd like to find 10 farmers 10 farmers support them to go soy free and in doing so create case studies and understanding that really strengthened that education beyond just oh here you go here's some an alternative and you can use it to what is the risk you know can I close off some of those ambiguities and, and make them certain you know is it going to impact my fertility is it going to impact my butter fat and my constituents um, the answer so far has been no which is, is really good if anything we're predicting that some fertility might be a little bit better in certain herds um, and what are the other opportunities you know we found some farmers have been able to cut back on soya or, or um, that protein bulk item and instead they've been able to put in some extra energy they've boosted their yield they've boosted constituents there's been some real positives Actually, we're going to probably push for 30 this year. It's been quite successful. We've had quite a bit of drive and uptake. Um, people seem to be happy that the, the shift is manageable and, and, and it can happen. Obviously, one of the biggest tools we've used is economics. You know, unashamedly, we sat down with a feed company and said, right, what is the cost? And the literal cost of, of transforming when we first did this was at 0.25. And then obviously we had geopolitical events that pushed that to 0.4 of a penny a litre we put our hand in our pocket and we've paid for it because there was no cost return to the farmer in the first instance you know we had to grease that cash flow um and it all hangs under an axe i suppose of regulatory change of 2027 and i think the balance of those pieces not coming in with the axe too fast because let's face it all our farms could have gone fine we won't bother and we'll sell all our milk to somebody else not coming in with a ridiculous amount of economics or none at all and then forcing a shock within the feed price system all of that has helped and, and i'll be honest with you it was our biggest sort of step into behavior management it all could have gone wrong and i i touch wood and thank lucky stars and all the bits and pieces that at the moment it's working the biggest piece with that is don't underestimate how easy it it is because that was quite a summary and it's been painful for all actors actually it's been painful but we've shared that pain um and we recognize there's a need to shift and change you know so we've moved slightly faster with our social ambassadors we do need to work a lot more at the education piece we consistently underestimate the challenge of that and we've got to be flexible on economics you know at, at both sides you know if, if prices fall on on rapeseed meal as, as a replacement and we're paying over the odds well actually there's wiggle room that we can then invest somewhere else and help i suppose the flip side to that something that's a bit novel and and and, and a bit different is um we've been very lucky to work with a company um 
who've been providing a, a slurry additive, I suppose, is the most familiar term that, that farmers and, and, and industry would recognise. But it's more than that. You know, Kings Hay and various other people have done huge amounts of research in the, in, in the past. And they show that if you put an additive in and you use it right, it will, it will withhold or retain nutrients in, in the slurry. That's grand and that's not what we were looking to support. We wanted to do a deeper dive into the economics for the farmer because we recognise if there's a return on investment, we can invest our money into research elsewhere. But actually, if you show the farmer there's a return on investment, it reduces the risk and a certain degree of ambiguity. Um, but we also realised that there was there was still a bit of ambiguity in there. You know, what's 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 the real benefit beyond retained nitrogen, which is often difficult to calculate and, and actually sort of work out how much I had in the first place. And really what we did is we wanted to push a trial that that looked at the impacts on soil health and crop yield. And so our, our tool was in the reset was was this microbial additive. The education piece was really rather than, you know, how do I use this is what was the effect? You know, farmers were aware of how you put um, additive into slurry. It was the effect of that. And the effect of that was significant, you know, um, vast reduce in inorganic fertilizer purchased, um, vast uh, increase in yield, 18% on average across the plots, 30% on, on certain plots, um, doubly checked by Dutchie College as well, um, and a return on investment then of five to one as a minimum. So I think in that point, rather than then putting a regulation, you have to use this. What we've looked at doing actually is putting in a sustainability assurance, which is regulation light, I suppose. If you use this, you can then claim an additional sustainability premium from April. The premium then helps with the cash flow. So we've thought about the economics again. The cash flow of in making the investment allows me to gain the product, realise my return on investment, and I know what the benefit is long term. So I can work out, is this for me? Is this for my farm? Is this where I make my initial investment? And that, that really is sort of probably a gross oversimplification of quite a complex problem. But knowing your levers, knowing how you can apply them to your target audience, and, and that's key, knowing your target audience, because they're not always the same for each lever. That's been the approach we've taken. And so far in those instances, we've shown progress. But we've only taken one step on the road to our sustainability strategy, really, at this point. And I really, I really, like, you know, I really like the reset method. And I think in terms of those rules and regulations, yes, you, it could be deemed as a, as a stick, but also those uh, sort of rules can be deemed as that those methods of best practice. Yeah. Um, and they don't have to be written in stone. They don't have to be written as part of a contract, but they are the methods of best practice to to gain that efficiency and to gain those those steps forward and to understand, again, the part it plays within, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned cost return, return on investment, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. I also really like the point you were talking about about multiple audiences, or I call them multiple, um, uh, sorry, actors, multiple audiences. And mm. I think about it in terms of sort of a unpeeling the onion, almost, you know, those layers. And I yeah. think in in your example, you know, the farmer would be the core, and then you've got the other layers around, and and um, nutritionists were the one that you you sort of mentioned. In yes. terms of that example, what? Are, are there any other layers in terms of those audiences that you've tried to have uh, con uh, conversations with or or nudge change um, to, to get to your end goal? Absolutely. Um, I mean, vets obviously spring to mind uh, in a similar consultancy role, actually. Um, there are a broader range of consultants, sometimes from outside the industry. 
Thanks, Ben. That's been a really interesting conversation. I think gives an overview of some of the, the projects and some of the work that you and your team at Glambia are doing in terms of that farmer adoption and, and some of those farmer change elements as well. Um, and I think you've been really clear in, in what you've been saying around know your audience, know your target audience and understand the differences between some of those audiences and indeed some of those um, sort of subsections um, within audiences or segmentations um, and especially how those levers in terms of those reset levers can be can be used, when to use them, how to use them, who to use them with, um, has hopefully given um, the listeners some some real sort of insight in, into some of that. Um, and this is actually the first of two podcasts that me and Ben have recorded. Um, so please do listen um, out for the second podcast, which will be coming soon. Um, but also remember to follow CL on Twitter and LinkedIn um, or check out cielivestock.co.uk for more CL insights on farmer adoption. Uh, that have been released and will be released coming soon. And if you're a CL member, um, you can now listen back to the Farmer Adoption Innovation webinar, um, which featured Ben as one of the panellists, where the panel discuss opportunities and barriers to innovation uptake, the importance of support throughout the supply chain um, and ways to reduce that farmer risk by using multi-level approaches. Uh, the recording can be found in the member area of the website. Um, but until the next one, thanks for listening and goodbye.